There are few things sweeter than hearing children name the name of Christ. But a close second is children, you were dismissed to Children's Church. (laughs) Isn't that great to see 20 kids or so singing the name of Christ? And our prayer, of course, for our kids here is that every one of them would name the name of Christ in salvation and not just in a song. So we pray for them. Speaking of prayer, would you go to the Lord with prayer in prayer with me? Our Father, we are always so eager for this season. It, it is a time to refocus and to recenter our thoughts on Christ. And while every Lord's Day is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day that he was raised from the dead, this particular season traditionally now for many hundreds of years has been a, a terrific opportunity, Lord, for us to stop and think about the fact that the God who made us became one of us. And that is really a a thought that is almost impossible to comprehend. And so, Lord, this morning as we are in this beautiful season of remembering the birth of Christ, help us also to remember that the birth of Christ happened in a context, and that is the context of a world in need of salvation from sin, in the context of a Savior who would grow up to live a perfect life to perform a perfect ministry, to do many great miracles, to preach the greatest sermons of all time, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, to proclaim repentance from sin, to proclaim the offer of forgiveness, to die for the sins of all mankind, to be raised from the dead for our justification, to teach his disciples about the coming kingdom and that he's coming soon, to ascend into heaven and to even now intercede for us as he builds his church for his ultimate return. And so, Lord, while we love the birth of Christ, ought we to much more love Christ. And so help us to do that this morning. We pray for his sake and in his name. Amen. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. And during the Christmas season, we traditionally spend a lot of time and treasure giving gifts to one another because this is the most loving church on planet Earth. My desk is full of gifts from you right now. And it's just what we do. We we give to each other. We exchange these gifts. In fact, retailers in America count on the Christmas season as the greatest selling season of the year. I was in the store yesterday and the lines were out the door and the, the, the poor checkout people look suicidal. They're just ready to jump out of the window. We buy, we sell, we give treasure, we give gifts. But as we mature and we've all heard this and we've thought about this in our own hearts as we get older, we, we work hard to not put undue emphasis on what we're receiving but on what we're giving, and particularly, of course, spending this season as believers in Christ, enjoying the greatest emphasis on the coming of the Lord Jesus to earth, that he is the great gift. But as I mentioned last week, for some reason, the church of Jesus Christ can at times stay like a small child in that we focus exclusively on what we are receiving in the church, that we view the church from the standpoint of an outside consumer rather than an inside integral part. It sometimes doesn't occur to church members that they could be part of what strengthens the church or in fact, they could be part of what weakens the church, that that we are the church together. 
And so last week we began a little series that I'm calling Our Gift to Jesus, Our Christmas Gift to Jesus, that that our gift to Christ ought to be the one thing that we know from Scripture He desires, a bride, a, a church that's obedient and pure and wholesome and focused and mature and faithful. And to guide our understanding, we began examining the very first church, the church at Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts chapters 2 through 12. And last time we saw that the, the first element or the piece of our gift to Christ, our gift to Jesus, is a well-ordered church. We saw from Acts 2 and Acts 6 that the well-ordered church had members who knew what to do and they had leaders who knew what to do. And so today, to kind of add to our gift to Jesus, not only do we want to present him a well-ordered church in which we're like a beautiful symphony in which all the instruments are, are harmoniously playing together, a musical performance that's greater than the sum of the parts. Not only do we want to be a well-ordered church, but today we want to present to Christ a reliant church, a reliant church, a church that relies upon the Lord. Now, to kind of get our, our thinking going in this direction, I want to just kind of preface this by sharing a little personal reflection with you, sharing my own heart somewhat and some observations. I've been a minister of the gospel for well over two decades now, and I've been around the block and been a few, through a few Christmases, through a few um, resurrection Sundays and, and all of the seasons of the church. And I've learned that there are some things I know how to do as a gospel minister of Christ things which I can decide, things which I have some control over, things of which, humanly speaking, I can do as I wish. For example, I know the exegetical process of studying through a a passage of Scripture. I know how to do that. I know the process of taking that study and, and hopefully preparing it in a way that's worth listening to and is helpful to you. I can read theology and understand it. I can read other helpful works and understand them. I know the value of prayer in ministry. I know the value of loving those to whom I minister. I know the value of of preaching in love. I can set up a worship service in a way that I think honors Scripture. I can have a watchful eye over the songs we sing and the things we do in the church. These are things basically in my control that I can make decisions about empowered by God and in submission to Him. There's one thing I have never been able to figure out. There's one thing that's escaped me despite all my efforts to the contrary. It's something that I have spent countless hours in prayer about. One thing which really no human being can actually accomplish, and that is how to impart a true and abiding love for the church. A love which leads to you living your life centered in the church as opposed to tacking the church on as another part of your life. That kind of love is a supernatural act of God. But what we can do is examine those who love the church, examine those who cherish the bride of Christ and ask the Lord to bring to us that same love, that same longing for God's people, the the centrality of the church of Jesus Christ This is the only institution that God has promised through Christ to bless. Do you you understand this? Christ never promised to bless parachurch organizations. He never promised to bless even your individual ministry efforts per se. He promised to build his church. It is his institution. 
And the church in Jerusalem is a case in point for a church which has been striving to present itself worthy to Christ. And one of the ways they did this was to demonstrate themselves to be a reliant church. And this reliance upon the Lord manifested itself in two very obvious ways, which I'd like to explore this morning. First, they relied on the power of the Scriptures. And second, they relied on the power of the Spirit. They relied on the power of the Scriptures, and they relied on the power of the Spirit. They relied first on the power of the Scriptures. Now, I should point out a distinction here. Last week, we emphasized that the church in Acts 2, verse 42, was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, the, the body of authoritative teaching from Christ's um, commissioned apostles, which would ultimately become our New Testament. But they weren't just giving out brand new information. This wasn't new information solely. They were teaching what they learned directly from Christ. Remember that in John chapter 14, Jesus promised that the Spirit of God would bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them. They were teaching, though, not just new information and not just what they learned from Christ, but they were teaching based on the authority of Christ anchored in the previous revelation of God that we now call the Old Testament. That's what their teaching and preaching was anchored on. Now, now with that understanding, we could identify maybe three manifestations of their reliance on the power of Scripture. Three manifestations of their reliance on the power of Scripture. First, their reliance on the power of the Scriptures manifested itself in what we'll call the authority of the preacher. The authority of the preacher. And I'm going to heavily weight our time on this. The idea of authority in preaching in our day and age, in the 21st century, has been downplayed. It has been made fun of. It has been mocked that either if you possess authority in preaching or say that you do, you're, you're arrogant, you're overbearing, or maybe perhaps it's even associated with the manipulative, uh, charismatic and prosperity gospel preachers who claim divine authority based on personal revelation that they stand behind a pulpit or usually march around and dance around behind a pulpit and say, God told me this, therefore I'm telling you. And so when somebody says authority in preaching, we kind of shy away from that. And so in our contemporary culture, to say that the preacher carries authority is not always popular. In today's culture, millennial culture, preachers are supposed to wear cool clothes and ask lots of questions. They're not supposed to give a lot of answers. They're just supposed to maybe uh, help us have a conversation together. But I want to show you the authority and the weightiness with which the Apostle Peter preached in the church of Jerusalem. And I have to first point out that he never says, he never says, you must listen to me because I'm an apostle. Did you know that? He produced a weight of authorization that goes even beyond that. And this is really important. In other words, we, we can't just say, well, this is just the unique preaching of an apostle. We can say rather, this is the pattern of preaching set forth that is to go from here on out that we can emulate. So let's look at the rather direct and straightforward preaching demonstrated by Peter. It's almost a preaching tutorial from Peter himself. And to do this, I just want to analyze his preaching a little bit. 
In his most famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he's explaining what all of these people have witnessed as the apostles spoke in miraculous languages, as all the people heard a, a mighty great wind as the Spirit of God came upon them. And we're going to notice some factors in Peter's preaching here. You don't have to try to memorize these or, or even note them because I'll repeat them. Some factors in this preaching, first of all, and this is the technical term in Latin, it's finger pointing. Finger pointing. There's a school of thought in preaching that says that the preacher ought to speak more in terms of we ought to rather than you ought to. That this demonstrates that we're all in the same boat together and there's certainly a legitimacy to this at, at many levels. But this sure isn't what Peter did. In this first introduction of the first sermon he ever preached, the first sermon in the church of Jesus Christ, he verbally demands the attention of his listeners. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and implied, you give ear to my words. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel implied, you hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you, Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you notice he didn't say we crucified Christ? He said you crucified Christ. Talk about a first sermon. When I make recommendations to a new pastor going to a new church, I don't say preach like that. So finger pointing. Here's another factor we could identify in Peter's preaching. We'll just call it confidence in proclamation. Confidence in proclamation. There's a school of thought in preaching that the preacher ought to ask a lot of hard questions for the listener to ponder. And and rather than giving out lots of answers, because giving answers, in fact, disrespects the congregation, disrespects the listener, that the goal is to provoke thought, not necessarily to be so brash as to presume to give truth, That's not what Peter does. Look at verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He boldly asserts the historical fact of Jesus Christ, the historical fact of his miracles, the historical fact of all of his works. And he says, these are proof that he was sent by God and you know it. There's, there's no lack of confidence there. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence. Verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. It's a word that means something that's secured, that's tied down, that's fastened down, that is anchored, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. We could identify a third factor in Peter's preaching, the demand for a verdict. The demand for a verdict. Peter isn't just trying to provoke thought. He's trying to get all of his listeners to pick sides, to make a decision concerning Christ. Twice, he's already said, you crucified Christ. 
He's also said that Jesus was here by the plan of God, verse 23. He was attested by God, verse 22. And he was approved of by God, verse 36. So the choice he's giving here is obvious. If I'm against Christ, that means I'm against God. But if I'm guilty of crucifying Christ, then I am in trouble. You know what most of the people came to? They came to the verdict of, I am in trouble. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who's this guy think he is? His first sermon right out of the gate, finger pointing, overly confident, demanding I make a decision. Well, maybe he's just arrogant. Maybe he's just having a bad day. Well, let's see. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had just come across a lame beggar in the temple courts and had healed him in the name of Jesus. And all the people around were, were shocked to see this man walking. He'd been crippled for many, many decades. And so Peter preached a sermon to the passers-by, and guess what we see in this sermon? Finger-pointing. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at all this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Verse 13, he says, You delivered Christ to Pontius Pilate. Verse 14, You denied the Holy and Righteous One. Verse 15, You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. But then he still is finger pointing, but he does it with hope. In verse 17, you acted in ignorance. Verse 20, Jesus Christ was appointed for you. And in verse 26, God sent him to you, every one of you. And he offers this finger pointing at their sin and then finger pointing saying that God wants to save you and you and you and you. How about confidence in preaching? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. This is a confident assertion of the plan of God. The end of verse 16. He says, and we'll begin at the beginning, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and that faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. A, a confident explanation of the lame man's healing. He says, this is why. This is who did it. He issues a demand for a verdict. In verse 19, there's no lack of clarity here. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 26, he demands a verdict as well. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Turn from your wickedness and turn to Christ. Again, who does he think he is? Why is he finger pointing? Why is he so overly confident? Why is he demanding I make a decision? Maybe Peter hasn't figured out preaching yet. Turn to Acts 4. Let's see if he gets it. Acts 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So Peter and John are arrested. The next day they're questioned by the high priest and the high priestly family. Will Peter abandon his brash ways and will he take a lesson from 21st century preachers 
and really do it right? Hardly. First, he starts off by finger pointing. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. And now he does finger pointing in a really A, creative and B, offensive way. Instead of saying you, he says we. And you would say, oh, well, okay, now he's being nice and he's putting himself in the same boat with his congregation. His congregation don't want to be in the same boat with Peter because his congregation, the leaders of Israel, that's who he's preaching to. Verse 13, he says that these leaders viewed Peter and John as, quote, uneducated common men. In other words, they're lower than us. They are scum. We are great. And so Peter says in verse 12, not that by the name of Jesus, you must be saved, but by the name of Jesus, we must be saved. All of us sinners, all of us scumbags, including you. How creative is that? Pointing the finger and putting himself in there as well. He's saying to these self-righteous leaders, you're just as filthy as I am. Is he confident? Verse 10 He proclaims confidently that the lame man was healed by Christ. In verse 12, he boldly asserts that salvation from sin is in no one else. There is no other name except Christ by which salvation is possible. Does he demand a verdict? There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is clear. Either believe that Jesus alone is the way of salvation and live or reject this and die in your sin. And once again, we might ask, who do we think he is? Because so far, he's just spouting off a lot of really brash statements. What has given Peter authority as a preacher? It is his reliance on scripture for authority. Go back with me to Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, 17 through 21, Peter quotes from the book of Joel, verses, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, that God has already promised to pour out his spirit. He's explaining what's happening here on Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming. He proclaims in verse 16 that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of parts of this prophecy. Then in verses 25 through 28, Peter teaches from Psalm 16, 8 through 11 to prove that the death and resurrection of Christ was predicted a thousand years before Christ. Look at verse 27 with me. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proven from the Old Testament. Verses 34 and 35. Now Peter switches over to Psalm 110, the Psalm which King David calls his own coming descendant, his own coming family member, generation after generation away, Jesus Christ, he calls his own descendant, my Lord, who was addressed by God long before his birth. And so from one verse in Psalm 110, Peter affirms the deity and the eternality of Christ. His authority is in scripture. Turn with me to Acts chapter three. Look at verse 18. Peter proclaims that the death of Christ was foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. And he's citing scripture here. 
In verses 22 and 23, Peter cites three different verses in Deuteronomy 18 to prove that God has already promised to raise up a, a prophet to whom Israel should listen or else. Look with me at verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then in verse 25, Peter cites the Abrahamic covenant, specifically referencing Genesis 22 and Genesis 12, that that all that's happened in the ministry of Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, in the raising up of the church, this is all part of the plan God's always had all along. Acts chapter 4. Look with me at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's preaching to the leaders of Israel. And Peter is citing Psalm 118, verse 22, which predicted that the leaders of Israel would reject her Messiah. Once again, we would ask, who does he think he is? What has given Peter this authority as a preacher? It is his reliance on Scripture. Can I put it more simply? Authority in preaching comes by saying the Bible says. The Bible says. And I want you to notice something. Peter never apologizes for using the scriptures. He, he never says, but before I quote scripture to you, let me give you 50 reasons why the Bible is true. He doesn't need to do that. That's like releasing a lion amongst us and say, um, before you run away from that lion, let me give you 50 reasons why you should. He never tries to convince his hearers of the authority of Scripture. Why? You ready for this? Scripture is inherently authoritative. It doesn't need my help to make it authoritative. It just is. The reliance of the Church of Jerusalem on the power of Scripture has manifested itself in the authority of the preacher. The reliance on the power of Scripture has manifested itself, secondly, in their definition of success. And their definition of success. What makes a church successful? What is that? Over 30 years ago, Kent and Barbara Hughes wrote a, a really important book, a key book called Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome. And this book rose, rose out of Dr. Hughes' own study after planting a church as a young man and he put countless hours of work into this community outreach, demographic studies, planning, strategizing, And of course, working hard at preaching and teaching, only to find that after six months, his church was shrinking. And he didn't know why. And so despair fell upon Dr. Hughes. And in this time of darkness and disillusionment, he and Barbara decided to search the scriptures. And here's what he says, quote, We found no place where it says that God's servants are called to be successful. Rather, we discovered our call is to be faithful. And he cites the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. The stewards of the word of God are to be faithful in their proclamation. That's success. That's success. It's very interesting that this is precisely how the book of Acts defines success in the church. You remember Peter speaking to the crowd after healing the lame man? What happened as a result? Well, look with me at Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what happened. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
what's the priority here? Yes, there were 5,000. That's incredible. And yes, they believed, but why? They heard the word. That's the top priority. Peter, faithful to proclaim scripture, saw the fruit of his faithfulness. Who is the least, from a worldly standpoint, trivia question, least successful preacher in history? You ready for this? Jesus Christ. Because on one day he preached to 20,000 people and the next day 11,988 of them left and said, we don't like what he teaches. And he was left with 12. From a worldly standpoint, that's unsuccessful preaching. But we would never say Jesus was unfaithful. He was faithful. Look at chapter six with me. As the church is still growing, Luke, the author of Acts, he refuses to give any other definition of success. It's always the same. Luke 6, verse 7. Here's the success of the church. Actually, start in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, we've already had 3,000 once, Acts 2. Now, we've had 5,000 in Acts 4. That's 8,000. Acts 6, they're still increasing. They can't stop this thing. But what's the definition of success? Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to increase. Flip over to chapter 12 with me. We're still in the church of Jerusalem. By now, Stephen has been martyred. And in chapter 12, we see James, the brother of John, martyred. Great persecution has broken out in Jerusalem Many believers have had to flee and now there's just outright animosity against Christians by the governing authorities. On one occasion, God intervened and fought for his own glory. Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now we would say, now that's success. That's what we've been waiting for. But is that success? That's God defending his honor and his glory. But honestly, that's really more of a footnote to set up for the real success in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. There's the success. And that's the last time in Acts, for the most part, except for a brief time in chapter 15, that the focus stays on the church in Jerusalem. The final word about the church of Jerusalem is that the word of God increased. That's success. So this church saw success as defined by the increased proclamation of the word of God. They relied on the power of the scriptures and their reliance on the power of scripture manifested itself in the authority of the preacher. In their definition of success, there's one more manifestation. We'll just call it the focus of their members. The focus of their members or, or the focus of their membership. Turn back with me to chapter four. When Peter and John were released after being arrested, they went to some in the church to report what had happened. And this group of friends went to prayer. It's a bold and fiery prayer. In verses 24 through 28, they acknowledged that all that had happened to Jesus at the hands of the authorities was by God's sovereign plan. And then they made a request. It, it was not 
take down these powerful men. It was not dismantle the government. It was not overthrow these horrible men. It wasn't change the laws of the land. It wasn't bring vindication. Here was their request in chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. By the way, they also prayed for the apostles to continue to be empowered to perform signs and wonders, apostolic signs, but their first priority, their first prayer request, grant that the word would continue. Grant that the word would be proclaimed. You know, God cursed Israel for about 400 years. He warned them at the end of the book of Malachi that this was going to happen, that if they didn't turn back, there was going to be something terrible that would happen. You know what happened for 400 years that was considered a curse? God didn't speak. In fact, we call it the silent years, 400 years of silence. Now, my point is this. This church knew what the focus of the church was to be. They knew what they were to be about. A ministry of proclamation of God's word and all other things point in that direction. All other things come under that priority. And that remained the standard all throughout Acts as the gospel spread worldwide. Well, the first way the Jerusalem church was reliant on God was they relied on the power of Scripture. But second, they relied on the power of the Spirit. Now, from here on out, I'm going to make references to a lot of different places in in Acts. It might be easier for you just to note the references. Right from the start, right from the very mouth of Christ himself, we see the power behind the church. The last words of Jesus Christ on earth before ascending into heaven he told the apostles in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the question is, and you hear this phrase all the time, power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is power for what? Power for what from the Spirit of God? Well, we could make a short list. Let's just make a list. First, power to advance the church. Power to advance the church. When the Holy Spirit would come upon the church, ushering in a new era in which all believers in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the first thing that Jesus said would happen as a result, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and the rest of the world. Even today, when we speak of proclaiming the gospel, what do we call it? We've turned it into a verb. We're witnessing, right? What is it we're witnessing? We're witnessing Christ's offer of salvation. You weren't personal witnesses of Christ while he was on earth, but you are a personal witness of his changing power in your own life. Listen, the the Holy Spirit is mentioned about 57 times or so in the book of Acts. And if we were to make just a, a short and incomplete list of how the Spirit of God advances the church, we could say, and this is just a representative list, the miraculous apostolic miracles which confirm the message of Christ. Acts 2, uh, the warning Peter of infiltrators in the church in Acts 5 a weapon in debate with wicked unbelievers in Acts 6, the means by which a dying Stephen saw a vision from heaven in Acts 7, the means of the spread of the faith to the Samaritans in Acts 8, the means of the spread of the faith to the Gentiles in Acts 10, guiding proclaimers of the gospel to the right audience, Acts 8, comfort to the church in the midst of persecution, Acts 9, and that's just when we're focused on the church in Jerusalem. That's not the rest of Acts. The Holy Spirit continues all throughout Acts to empower the advancement of Christ's church by preparing the hearts of listeners. 
You know why I love proclaiming the gospel? Because I have a head start. The Holy Spirit's been working on you and working on listeners for days, months, weeks, maybe years for this moment. This is like saying that I'm some, some sort of great slugger or hitter in the game of baseball, but what's actually happened is that somebody has come and put a nuclear ball on a little tee, and all I do is go, dink, and it goes, boom, over the fence. Because it's been prepared. Why is the church exploding in the book of Acts? Incidentally, why is the church exploding today? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit to advance his church. Here's a second thing we could add to the list. Power for apostolic miracles. Power for apostolic miracles. Acts 2 verse 4, the apostles are speaking in unlearned human languages. There's 15 of them listed. Acts chapter 5 In verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them, but the people held them in high esteem and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, why, why is this? Well, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 tells us that God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That these miracles were, were given at this early stage in the church to give confirmation and credence to the message itself. And it wasn't necessary for long, we, until the gospel took hold, until the New Testament began surfacing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of which, we could add to the list, how about this one? Power for the apostles' teaching to be written. How would you like to sit down with a pen and paper and have the pressure of writing the words of God? And no cheating, you don't get to look at any other references. You can't do that. That has to be from God. 2 Peter one twenty one. no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And of course, you're familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, correction and training in righteousness. It was the Holy Spirit that put a Bible in your hands. When was the last time you thanked the Holy Spirit for the Holy Bible? So we have power for the apostles' teaching to be written. We've already touched on this, but I'll touch on it one more time. We could add to the list power for effective preaching. Power for effective preaching. All through the Gospels, and I relate to them so much. Have you ever had that moment where you say something and you desperately wish you could just get those words right back and you say, why did I say that? Uh, Peter is the, the poster child for this. He's depicted as putting his foot in his mouth multiple times. Matthew 15, Jesus tells some basic kingdom truth. And Peter says, explain this to us. And Jesus said, are you still without understanding? That's Hebrew for, duh. Matthew 16, Jesus warned the apostles, watch and beware of the leaven, the the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, meaning that a, a little teaching, bad teaching will go a long way. And they got this, yeast spreads. And Peter and the other disciples said, does he mean we forgot to bring the bread? What? 
Matthew 16, Peter tried to get Jesus to stop talking about going to the cross and Jesus had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. In John 13, to give the disciples an object lesson, Jesus would wash their feet. But of course, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And most famously, Peter denied Christ three times the night Jesus was betrayed. Peter had a philosophy of speaking. It was ready, fire, aim. That was his philosophy. And yet, now filled with the Holy Spirit, in the first and perhaps most important sermon in history, Peter stood before 3,000 men and preached a fiery call to repentance that shook the audience to the core of their being with the fear of God so that they cried out, what shall we do? And it resulted in the birth of the church. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, is prefaced with, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he proceeded to stand firm for his faith in sermon after sermon after sermon for some 35 more years. We could add another thing to the list of how the Spirit empowered the church. Power for belonging to the body of Christ. Power for belonging to the body of Christ. One of the reasons I take church membership so seriously is because it is brought by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we see the coming of the Spirit of God to the brand new church in Acts chapter 2. But later in the New Testament, we get a doctrinal clarification made for us to help us understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initial immersion of a person in the Spirit of God that's common to all Christians. We're told in Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We get even more clarification in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. The Apostle Paul explains, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, belonging to Christ, belonging to his people is not accomplished through any other means except the spirit of God. Belonging to Christ is not accomplished by your personal commitment. I hate the phrase, make a commitment to Christ, because you can't or through any sort of human decision, belonging to the church, belonging to the body of Christ, is accomplished through the Spirit of God. There were no second-class believers in the church of Jerusalem. Now, of course, there were those who thought perhaps the Jews had a head start and were farther along, but when the Gentiles in Acts 10 received the Holy Spirit, that erased that argument. It became abundantly clear that the body of Christ wasn't made up of Jews or Gentiles, but all those who had received the Spirit. We could add to our list, the church flourished under the power of the Spirit. The Spirit gave them power for godly leadership. Power for godly leadership. As we saw last time, even the lead servants in the church were identified as being qualified because Acts 6, 3, and 5 says that they were full of the Spirit. Now, the idea of being filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts has different connotations both in Acts and in the New Testament. Initially in Acts 2, when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were indwelt, they were empowered to speak these unlearned languages. But then being filled with the Spirit in Acts could also speak of a particular moment in which the Spirit of God empowered one for the bold proclamation of the gospel. As I've already referenced, Peter in Acts 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, after praying with the church, 
Acts 4.31 says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. But we get another nuance later in the New Testament of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. If we make a comparison, and we've done this before, if we make a comparison between Ephesians 5 and Colossians chapter 3, we can, we can come to a conclusion. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now cross-reference this with Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, the Apostle Paul equates being filled with the Spirit to letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, what does that have to do with reliance on the Spirit for the power in leadership? Comparing this to the qualification of Acts 6 of being full of the Holy Spirit we could surmise that the church relies on the power of the Spirit to work through the men in whom the Word of God dwells in them richly. Does that make sense? This is a reliant church, a reliant church. They relied on the power of the Scriptures. They relied on the power of the Spirit. And in fact, in keeping with this last idea, I want to marry these two ideas because they're so close that you really can't do one without the other And we can see in several ways the intersection of relying on the power of the the Scriptures and relying on the power of the Spirit. Let me give you three ways these intersect. First of all, they intersect in the sanctification of the church. They intersect in the sanctification of the church. As, As one of those who has the privilege of doing what I consider the most important job on earth, and that is to proclaim the gospel to the lost and to teach the saved, I really, at this point, I've stopped being surprised when I find that a particular sermon or a part of a sermon was used by the Spirit of God to address a specific person in need or in sin or to expose a secret. I've lost track of the number of times I have been preaching in this very room and seen somebody's mouth drop drop open because I know at that moment the Spirit of God, the arrow, has found found its home when some seemingly random verse or point or application or illustration has revealed the secret of someone's heart. That is the word of God being used by the spirit of God. You know what I am? I am an archer that holds one bow, that is the Bible, and 500 arrows, and I let them all go, and the spirit of God takes them, and they fly, and they hit their mark. There's a second way these ideas intersect. First, in sanctification, Second way they intersect, we'll call it in decision-making. Decision-making of individual believers. If, like the qualified leaders of the church, being full of the Spirit is similar to or identical to letting the Scriptures dwell in you richly, then in any and every situation in your life, you can ask one of two questions, which is really the same question. You could ask A, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do in this situation? Or you can ask, B, what scriptures or scriptural principles ought I to apply to this situation? Same question. Because to be filled with the Spirit is to obey the scriptures. To obey the scriptures is to be filled with the Spirit. One more way these two ideas intersect, we'll just call it in evangelism. In evangelism, in the salvation of the lost, Let me get this idea of being reliant on the scriptures and reliant on the spirit into gospel terms. Let's take it back to the central truth 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. Well, we have a problem. Romans 3 says that we are depraved. We are those who don't seek God. We don't have the power to believe. We can't believe. We can't have faith. But Jesus said in John chapter 3 that it's the Spirit of God who causes us to be born again, who enlivens our spirit to be able to believe, to be able to believe, to be able to believe, to be those who have faith. And put all this together with Romans ten seventeen that says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, that is through the scriptures proclaimed. Put all of this together and what do you have? It is the spirit of God regenerating the heart of the one who has heard the word of God. And that's how these two are married in evangelism. Why was the church of Jerusalem growing in number? Because they were faithful to proclaim the word of God and in his sovereignty, the spirit of God moved through that gospel proclamation at his discretion and in his timing. So when a local church says, let's have a dress like a Star Wars character Sunday to attract the lost. Or when they say, let's have a back to school backpack giveaway to attract the lost. Or when they say, let's have pajama Sunday to attract the lost or like Andy Stanley's church did recently when they have a really, really, really untalented rapper do a rap song about college football because that will attract the lost to Christ. I think the church of Jerusalem would say, you've lost your way. You've lost your way. You rely on the power of scripture and on the power of the spirit working through the scriptures proclaimed. Right now, even in the past weeks, there's an upsurge in persecution against our precious brothers and sisters in China. And this past week, one of the most well-known Chinese pastors, Pastor Wang Yi, was, he had met with President George Bush in 2006. He was arrested along with 100 Christians. The Chinese government raided one of China's largest house churches. And you have to understand, a house church doesn't speak of its size. It's just any church that's not sanctioned by the, officially sanctioned by the Chinese government. House church can have hundreds or even thousands of members. But in September of this year, Wang Wang Li wrote a, a letter that was to be released if he went missing more than 48 hours. It's a long letter, which very accurately details that he respects the government of China as having been set up by God. He will never condone any action which tries to subvert that authority, but no government can order someone to not worship Christ. And he accurately says, quote, the change of all social and political systems is not the mission of my calling, nor the purpose of the gospel being given to the people of China. And it's a, it's a stunning letter. And I just want to read to you one little part because he uses a phrase that just stops me in my tracks. He says, as a pastor, my disobedience is part of the gospel mission. The great mission of Christ requires our great resistance to the world. And listen to this. The purpose of resisting is not to change the world, but to witness another world. That's the purpose. Those are the words of a man leading a church who is reliant on the power of the scriptures and on the power of the spirit. For we are witnesses to this world of a world that's to come. Let's give the Christmas gift to Christ of a church that's like that. Let's do that. Amen.
Our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of Christ. As much as we try to do things that please you and, 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 and honor you, we offer our worship, we, we give our offerings, our prayers, our service, our time, our talents. As much as we do those things, we will never, ever catch up to you. We will never come close to equaling the gift of Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, before there was a universe, before there was anything, before there was matter, before there was time, before there was space, when all that existed was our beautiful triune God in perfect love and relationship in the members of the Godhead, before everything, according to Ephesians 1, chose us before the foundation of the world. And so, Lord, we are here this morning to give you thanks, to give you honor. And might we be able to do that by being a bride that is worthy of Christ, that is wearing a a clean robe of reliance upon the power of the scriptures and reliance upon the power of the spirit. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman here today who is not certain if they know Christ Oh, Lord, every single person has a relationship with Christ. He will either be their savior or their judge. And I would pray that this day, this morning, that the Christmas gift that you would give to yourself would be the gift of more kingdom citizens. Would you bring to faith those who have not yet believed, those who have perhaps fooled themselves in thinking that going to church or doing religious things or doing churchy things or being around churchy people will somehow earn points with you, but nothing will. Only Christ has earned your favor. And it is only through Christ that we can earn your favor for he is the way, the truth, and the life and no one will come to you except through him. And so I pray that this day no one would leave here without knowing Christ. Would you, Holy Spirit, do your mighty work of regeneration even as I'm speaking that even now you would move and you would blow according to your own will to save the lost. And Lord, we pray for each believer here. I pray that during this Christmas season they would continue to focus their hearts on Christ, that they would have gospel opportunities to to be witnesses of, of the gospel to others and that they would be continually mindful to present ourselves as a bride, spotless and pure, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.